There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we have episode six of our Iconic Ships mini-series in which a guest is given the chance to make the case that their chosen ship is iconic. And at the end of the year we will have a public vote to see who has won. Today I'm delighted to say we have Kate Jameson, a naval historian who spends her days working in maritime security but claims she is not a pirate. You can find her on Twitter at kejameson underscore where she is a force to be reckoned with in the world of social media. Kate is a big fan of the 18th century Navy and has chosen as her iconic ship HMS Bellerophon, a 74-gun ship of the line launched in 1786, which went on to have one of the most remarkable careers of any ship in the Great Age of Sail. Here is Kate to tell you more. Kate, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Now, um... I did ask you to do an episode on an iconic ship, and we were talking about choosing one from the 18th century. Why did you choose the Bellerophon? There are so many to choose from. There are. Uh, the Bellerophon is probably, I guess, one of the most iconic ships, and I think quite a lot of people interested in naval history have heard of her, either as the Bellerophon or the Billy Ruffian, uh, to go by, I guess, the more colloquial name uh, that her crew gave her. Um but she had a fantastic history and really played a role in three of the largest battles of the period, I guess. Um, I, just, I just think it's fascinating, her history. Yeah. What do we know about her name? So Bellerophon was named after the Greek hero Bellerophon, who was the son of Poseidon, uh, who famously slew the Chimera and tamed Pegasus. Her crew referred to her as the Billy Ruffian, uh, which happened with, with quite a few of the ships of the time. And it's thought because they couldn't necessarily pronounce pronounce the name. Yeah, just uh, I love the kind of sense of, um, you know, association and fondness with the with the ship that these uh, these nicknames uh, these nicknames give a sense of Absolutely. Um, and so she was famous yeah famous not not just for one but for three different battles three yeah the glorious first of june in 1794 the battle of the nile in 1798 and of course the battle of trafalgar in 1805 mm, i suppose before all that though she had to be built let's let's start with a, with with her design and construction what do we know about that 
Yeah, so the Bellerophon was designed by Sir Thomas Slade, who was considered to be one of the finest shipbuilders in Britain, uh, really. He was a surveyor initially, uh, before going on to build the ships himself, uh, and, and eventually became known for building these kind of wonderful ships that really sort of stood the test of time. Yeah. Um, I mean... I've always been astonished by the amount of resources it would take to build an 18th century ship of the line. What do we know about uh, about the, the, the number of trees that it took to build the <laughs> Lerophon? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's thought that, uh, so she was a 74-gun ship, uh, and it was thought that generally you'd use between 3,000 and 3,700 loads for these ships, which is about 3,000 oak trees. But all of these trees had to be... They were, they were pretty old by this point, so they were all about 80 to 120 years old as well, which, which gives you some sense of how many trees you needed and how long these trees really needed to grow for in order to be able to then build these ships. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is they, they didn't just need um, an oak which had grown in an oak forest. What they tended to need were, were oaks which had grown in isolation so that they had the, the, the space to grow and they could, mm-hmm. um, they could achieve those, those magnificent shapes. And it does make you wonder about how much land was taken up. I've got no idea how, how much land takes up 3,000 <laughs> trees. Well, quite a lot, um, quite a lot. I think uh, especially, so I, I used to live near the New Forest, which was obviously famous for, for its shipbuilding yards um, and the whole of the sort of Solent, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an important, important part of the world for British shipbuilding. Um, I suppose she first really cut her teeth uh, in the French Revolution in late 1790s. And what, what, did, what did she get up to during that period? So she actually started out uh, predominantly being uh, laid up in, in kind of a reserve uh, until the French Revolution began, uh, at which point they had to go and A, find a crew for her and then B, take her, find a use after a kind of repair job and a slight refit. So she initially started out on a blockade duty, um, obviously stopping the French going in and out, stopping imports and exports, uh, and sort of limiting the time that the French could get to sea in order to train or fight, really. Uh, predominantly, yeah. I think she started out uh, off Brest, actually, in fact, which is an interesting one yeah. in itself. Yes, and it was a difficult place to blockade. If any of you have sailed in the Bay of Biscay, it's not a brilliant place to spend huge amounts of time there. And um, the, the, the Bellerophon found it tough as well, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, like you said, the, the weather is not great and you only really had a few sort of windows of opportunity that you could use in order to, to stop people from actually escaping just because of the nature of, of where she was. Yeah, it did give the the blockade was advantageous in the in the fact that it gave them a lot of time to practice their seamanship. And um, one of the stories I like about the Bellerophon is is how she became famed for being um, being so quick. And it really suggests that her her crew were really were, were highly skilled. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't gain the nickname the Flying Bellerophon uh, uh, for no reason at all. <laughs> And that really does come down to her crew just being so efficient. Yeah. Um, how did they get the name? The Flying Bellerophon. So whilst yeah. they were uh, on blockade duty, Howe decided that he was going to use some of their movements away from Brest, where they were blockading the French, to sort of see how quickly his ships were uh, in a sort of race, I guess. Um, Bellerophon managed to go past everybody 
and then even getting back before everybody else and furling away all of the sales before they even caught caught her again. Um, and after that, Howe decided to create a flying squadron, which was made up of all of his fastest ships. And obviously the Bellerophon was one. Uh, and she became well known for being incredibly fast. Yeah. It wasn't long before um, before the crew could really get get going with what they wanted to do which was fight the french and this is a this is a period right at the beginning of the french revolution during mm-hmm. the reign of terror so uh, the summer of 1794 an extraordinary period um when yeah the glorious first of june was the name of the battle fought on the first of june which became known as the the hardest fought battle of the age of sail and bellerophon um played a, an amazing part she did yeah so prior to the first of june obviously they were sort of engaging slightly with the the French um, towards the end of May. The weather wasn't necessarily in their favour. I think at one point it was it was really thick fog and nobody could actually do anything. Uh, so they used it to repair their ships from earlier, earlier engagements. But obviously by the time the 1st of June came around, the weather was in their favour. Uh, and then obviously they engaged with the French and went on to, to battle. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, isn't it? The French were coming, uh, coming back from America with grain ships, mm-hmm. and it was a matter of of trying to, well, sort of anticipating their arrival and then and then stopping them. What was Howe's plan for the battle? So Howe's plan really was to to stop, as you said, the the convoy. Um, and initially, the French were trying to avoid a battle, but Howe organised his fleet into a line, which became, uh, which was obviously how how most battles were fought. Uh, and they chased the French for quite a while, eventually broke their line, uh, and then engaged on the first of June. And uh, what was the Bellerophon's role in all of this? So the Bellerophon was actually one of the first ships to go into action. Uh, I think they said that she was within gunshot of the enemy's rear and gave them a very warm and fierce reception, which the enemy then returned with great vivacity, which I always find entertaining. But uh, the ship she, of course, decided to take on was the French three-decker, the Revolutionnaire, which was a vast ship. Uh, And, uh, yeah, during the battle, one of her midshipmen, Matthew Flinders, who obviously we know for becoming uh, an incredibly famous explorer, actually, with the Royal Navy, um, was a midshipman at the time and said that his admiral had lost uh, lost his leg by an 18-pound shot which came through the barricades of the quarterdeck in the heat of action. And, of course, the captain replied in that very stoic British sense, saying, thank you, never mind my leg, take care of my flag, which uh, which I find <laughs> amusing. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. And this was Admiral Pasley. And yes. um, for those of you listening, if you ever want to read a diary by an 18th-century uh, sea officer uh, that is entertaining as well as informative, <laughs> then you can do... Uh, much worse than the diaries of Admiral Pasley, and that, uh, he he seemed to have had a um, a wonderful relationship with his crew. But he was the, the ship was so smashed up at the glorious first of June, it took weeks to repair, and Pasley lost a leg. So the the Bellerophon was moving on to a, a new period in her life, wasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it took five weeks for her to be actually repaired once they got back to Britain, and it was it was a vast amount of damage. I think all three of the top masts were ruined. She couldn't steer uh, and I believe they actually sort of sailed her back with a kind of jury rig uh, to get her repaired Um, and of course Pasley left the ship and a new commanding officer came on who didn't particularly like the fact uh, that the men had a very set way of working um, and he thought that they were actually very ill-disciplined but I think I believe it's probably just the fact that they you know they worked in the way that Pasley wanted them to work uh, and Captain Cranston probably didn't agree with that. Yeah. 
So um, there were sort of hints of mutiny, but certainly hints of unrest, weren't there, during this period? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, you had the famous mutinies at the Nore, um, and actually later on, whilst the Bellerophon was off uh, off Cadiz, even there was a, another sort of mutinous act on one of the other ships that she was serving near, um, and I believe the ringleaders were hung. Hmm. Yeah, it was you know a, real, a period of real uncertainty. This mm-hmm. is what the spring and the summer of 1797, mm-hmm. and uh, back on blockade duty this time off Cadiz rather than Brest, but. Um, Still very trying, very difficult, but they were unusually close to Brest, I believe. Sorry, to Cadiz. They were unusually close to Cadiz. They were very close to Cadiz. Uh, I think some of the sailors actually wrote that they could see the women walking on the walls. So that must have given them a little bit of uh, some entertainment, I guess. Uh, but yeah, the weather was also a lot better in the Bay of Cadiz than, than that of Biscay and off of Brest. Yeah, but they'd be off, off chasing again. So what happened the following summer? What happened in 1798? So in 1798, at this point, Horatio Nelson had been chasing the chasing the French around the Mediterranean, trying to find them. He'd heard that they were near Turkey, and then uh, he headed back towards Sicily. But actually, it transpires that the French were in Egypt. Um, he eventually found out that they were off of Crete, or well, modern-day Crete, which I think at the time was called Candia, um, and he knew exactly where they were going. So they headed for Abu Kir Bay in Egypt. Yeah. And um, what was Napoleon trying to do in Egypt? So Napoleon obviously had his uh, had his designs on Egypt. um, And it's actually a really fascinating period of time to research if no one has read up on it. Napoleon's uh, encounters in Egypt. And actually, um, one of my favourite sort of stories to do with Napoleon in Egypt is how many of the uh, items that he discovered are now in our museums. (laughs) Yeah, including the Rosetta Stone. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the most important discoveries, because that was the means by which the hieroglyphs, the Egyptian hieroglyphs, were, were later decoded. Um, everyone, go and, go and look at the Rosetta Stone if you can, and, and we should probably put pressure on them to take it back. <laughs> Maybe it should be in an, in an Egyptian museum. So um, Nelson comes along. Um, the Bellerophon is part of his fleet. Mm-hmm. And they, they find the French at anchor off Abu Kir Bay. Uh, what happens next? So they sailed in uh, on the sort of late afternoon, early evening of August the 1st. Uh, the French were aware that Nelson was coming. They could see the ships, obviously. Uh, but they decided that they weren't going to put to sea because they had an edge in firepower. Uh, and I guess they sort of thought that the plan would be, as most battles are, that it would kind of be just fought with the two ships firing broadsides at each other. Um, eventually... The chap in charge of the French, Vice Admiral Bruys, realised that Nelson was coming and he couldn't understand what the signal flag said at all. Uh, And Nelson was obviously kind of planning for the wind to allow his ships down the line, stopping the French from coming and reinforcing. Um, And they used the fact that the French were anchored uh, in order to then use that to their advantage um, and pass through the inside of the French line. Yeah, it was that kind of key moment when when the British, I think it was Foley and the Goliath, who realised that the French were at single anchor, which meant that they mm-hmm. could swing on their anchors a full three sixty degrees, allowing the British to get to the landward of them as well as to seaward of them, and uh, just squashed the French. Absolutely, the <laughs> squashed in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But the Bellerophon has a pretty tough, tough time of it, doesn't she? Yeah, she struggled. So she was the eighth ship in the in the British line. And actually, interestingly, going back to our conversation about Thomas Slade earlier, five other ships of his design were also at the battle, um, still going years later. So she sailed for the centre of the French line. She was coming under fire. Uh, and unfortunately she, en- unfortunately, she ended up alongside Lorient, which was the French flagship, and she felt the full weight of those broadsides. There were 120 guns compared to the Bellerophon's 74. Uh, the guns were blown off their carriages, the rigging was shot away. I mean, the Bellerophon's crew were really well drilled and they did what they could to come back, but, you know, she was being utterly destroyed. Um, and within an hour... Her, con- her captain was unconscious. Most of her senior officers were killed or wounded. Her masts had been shot away. There was a fire on Lorient, which kind of distracted them slightly. Um, but they decided that what they were going to do is try and use <laughs> what little rigging they had left uh, on the bowsprit to try and move Bellerophon away from Lorient, knowing obviously that if, if she caught fire too badly, she would in fact explode, which is obviously what happened later in the battle. Yeah. Uh, well, one example, there are several examples of, of ships exploding in battle in the 17th and 18th century, but this one seems to um, take the biscuit, a, a catastrophic explosion. And I think the Bellerophon was very lucky indeed to survive. So, I mean, this it really does change change the nature of, of the war in, in the end of the 1790s. Um, and then there's uh, it's kind of all change, isn't it? And the Bellerophon gets mm-hmm. sent off to the Caribbean. What was going on there? So she went off to the Caribbean, uh, where she was mostly kind of protecting British merchant vessels. Um, at this point, and by the time she got there, um, sort of 1801, 1802, we weren't at war. Uh, but we were obviously still having to protect our ships because it's always always a good idea to keep an eye on things. Um, so, yeah, she ended up in Kingston and uh, was there for the next couple of years, actually. Yeah, uh, I always think it's fascinating if you read people's diaries who've been, say, on, in the Channel Station and then in the Mediterranean and then across to the Caribbean, just how significantly things actually change, even though uh, their conditions of, of actually being on the same ship are remarkably similar. So different jobs um, all round. She's there for quite a long time until um, oh, it was the summer of 1804. And then we have the build up to the Battle of Trafalgar. Yeah, so um, what was, yeah, what was she up to then? 1804, she uh, ended up heading back to Britain, which took five weeks, uh, which isn't actually that bad if you think about how long it takes to sail now on a modern day yacht. Um, and uh, yeah, it took her five, five weeks to get back. She went and joined the Channel Fleet blockading Brest again. Uh, and then in 1805, she was sent to patrol the Straits of Gibraltar under Collingwood. 
um, after the Admiralty had heard that the French had sort of escaped from Toulon. So whilst Nelson's there chasing Villeneuve around the West Indies, Collingwood was blockading Cadiz again um, until sort of later in later in the autumn, which is obviously where we start heading towards Trafalgar. Yeah. And then, it, you know, it, it all kicks off when the French and the Spanish are seen being put to sea. What happens next? So around the 19th of October, the French and Spanish fleet are putting to sea. The signal was passed down the British line. Uh, it was actually the Bellerophon's first lieutenant who was the first in the fleet to spot it uh, and said that it was a, he had the joy and the prospect afforded of an opportunity of bringing the enemy's fleet to action uh, and mostly consequently terminating the blockade, which they had been so long and so disagreeably employed. Um, I don't think anyone particularly liked being on blockade duty, so I think they were quite glad to have the the prospect of something a little bit more exciting um yeah how did Bellerophon fit into Nelson's plan for the battle so Nelson uh so Bellerophon sorry was in the line she was behind Royal Sovereign uh five ships behind I think actually um with Collingwood on Royal Sovereign obviously yeah and um now how did the battle unfold in 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 the location that Bellerophon was fighting yeah, so um, obviously at around 11.15, Horatio Nelson hoisted his signal, uh, England expects that every man will do his duty. Uh, and an hour later, an hour after that, Bellerophon was the ship that broke through the enemy line after, like I said, Collingwood on Royal Sovereign. <clears throat> she engaged the Monarca uh, and stopped her from actually returning any fire temporarily. But then as she came back through, she realised that she was on a collision course with one of the French ships and, and hit her. Um, much larger than Bellerophon. She had larger guns, she had soldiers, um, but as well as this, she was also taking fire from three other ships, including Swiftshore, going back to Thomas Slade, another another sister ship that had been captured by the French earlier in, in 1801. Yeah. Bellerophon was so smashed up at the glorious 1st of June and the Nile. Did she did she escape damage <laughs> at Trafalgar or was it the similar similar story? No, same story, unfortunately. Um, by about <laughs> by about one o'clock in the afternoon, the main and the mizzenmast had collapsed. They were over the side. The rigging was caught everywhere. Um, unfortunately, her captain was shot uh, at around quarter past one-ish, I think. Um, but, you know, just before when he was asked if he should be taken below, he said, no, no, just let me lie quietly one minute. Uh, and one of his lieutenants took command. Um, but she was basically under fire from every angle. She had no manoeuvrability. Um, the French crew were firing muskets and throwing grenades through the gun ports, and one of them actually almost caused the Bellerophon to to catch fire. There was a slight fire near the gunner's storeroom, um, and thankfully the door to the magazine was shut, uh, and the master gunner got some water and put the fire out with it without anybody else realizing what had happened. Thankfully, yeah, and it's it's one of those uh, great reminders that. Yes, you have these battles. We know how they turn out, but the sailors on board didn't know how it was going to turn out, and no, absolutely, um, very, very close indeed. Um, but they were they were immensely courageous, and I do particularly love the story of Christopher Beatty. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, for for those that don't know, Christopher Beatty, who was one of the crew of the Bellerophon, was apparently so fed up that the ensign kept being shot away that he climbed what was actually left of the rigging. Uh, and attached four corners of a flag where he could using using nails, I suppose. But the French were so amazed that he was actually even trying to do this, that they just let him get on with it and kind of watched, um, which is actually quite nice because prior to that, they'd just been shooting anyone that was trying to trying to gain some altitude, I guess, on the ship. <laughs> yeah. The advantage of height. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so you know the battle ends nelson's dead uh but there's been a very uh, comprehensive comprehensive mm-hmm. victory over the allied french and spanish uh, did the bellerophon head straight back or did she go to gibraltar so she went into gibraltar along with quite a few of the other ships obviously she was incredibly damaged and as well as being damaged from the battle there was the the famous storm that hit after the battle that that ruined quite a lot of the other ships um she sort of had some emergency repairs completed in gibraltar and then managed to i guess limp back to britain um and she was needed to have a refit but they kind of decided that well actually bellerophon should should accompany nelson's body back to britain on the victory so she was taking into plymouth dockyard eventually to be repaired um and then she went back on to blockade duty yeah boring but she did go and um uh, do well, actually have you said had boring it's um it's strategically fascinating yes um, and uh trying to understand the logistics of blockade if you're a naval historian or someone interested in naval history then 18th century blockade the whole way that it worked is completely extraordinary um maintaining an umbilical cord essentially back to the dockyards so the ships could stay there and the sailors could all stay fed and also healthy Absolutely. We know that the Bellerophon went on to, um, you know, serve in the North Sea. I think oh, this is fascinating under Sir James Solmarez. Um, mm-hmm. That's strategically interesting. And also uh, she takes part in the War of 1812. But it's it's after those that period. Um, it's 1815, right at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, where um, uh, the Bellerophon suddenly shoots to fame again. Um, tell us a story of what happens there in, in the summer of 1815. So, yeah, uh, in 1815, so six weeks, in fact, after Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, Bellerophon became famous. They'd received a letter um, wanting to discuss the terms of Bonaparte's surrender. Uh, and, yeah, the eventually Napoleon arrived on Bellerophon um, and he was in custody and taken to, to Britain. They were all treated very well. Uh, in fact, I think he was even given the great cabin um, and he wanted to, I think Napoleon wanted to travel to North America and he sort of hoped to gain some kind of asylum and that didn't happen. Um, so he got taken to to Brixham and then Plymouth. And there's a famous, uh, I guess, kind of a plaque down on Plymouth Hoe today where you can go and find out a little bit more about the fact that apparently hundreds of people were trying to get out in small boats to see Napoleon on the Bellerophon in Plymouth Sound. I wonder if he secretly enjoyed the fame or he was hiding. Yeah. Um, hiding. <laughs> I mean, it, it was very famously, he wasn't allowed to set foot on British soil, was he? He had to stay on the boat. Absolutely, yeah, because he, he, he wanted an audience with the Prince Regent, in fact, um, because he he thought that it would be nice, I suppose, to also recommend Captain Maitland for promotion to Rear Admiral as an appreciation of his hospitality. But, yeah, he he didn't manage to, to step ashore, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, Bellerophon, she goes on to do what, what a lot of uh, ships in the Navy did after they had retired from service and served as a convict ship. Do we yep. know much about her, her history in that period? Yeah, so obviously after the wars, the Napoleonic Wars, she was paid off. All of her masts and guns were removed and she was essentially just a hulk uh, and taken into Sheerness Dockyard where she was taken and fitted out as a prison ship so while she was a prison hulk she held around i think 435 prisoners um Mm. and then eventually it became a ship used to house boys rather than rather than adult prisoners um which she continued doing until 1826 when they decided that actually the arrangement of the the space inside made her unsuitable um and then she went on to to become 
a convict hulk until she was sold off in 1836 for timber, which is, is quite sad, really, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder I wonder where all those bits of timber have gone. Yeah, you do see some of them around, don't you, in uh, in, in church doorways and, and places like that. Yeah, that's a, a particularly common place to see them, actually. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, so there we are. Those, I think... Out of all of those, why do you think? What's the, the sort of the most important reason you should think we should all think of Bellerophon <laughs> as being an iconic ship? Well, for me, I just think it's the history. I mean, she took part in three of the the major battles. She had Napoleon on board, as well as that. I mean, even things like the blockade duties, I find fascinating, and think they were so important for for victory at that time. Um, that the fact that she just sort of took part in everything makes her her iconic, really. Yeah, no, I agree. It really encapsulates so much of all of the different roles Mm -hmm. and all of the different events of the 18th century. Kate, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thanks for having me. Many thanks for listening. Do please make sure that you find the Society for Nautical Research on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook, and also the Mariner's Mirror podcast, which has its own YouTube channel and Instagram page, all full of fabulously innovative ways of presenting our maritime past, as well as filmed interviews as I go out and about on my travels. The Society for Nautical Research's free forum can be found at snr.org.uk and I would urge you all to check that out, a fabulous and ever-growing miscellany of queries and answers. As we're talking today about the 18th century Navy, there are a couple of relevant queries from Ede Crawford and I'm sure there will be someone out there who can help her with the answers. First question, where was the powder kept on board a large sloop? Would the powder monkeys have to go right down there or would the ammunition be passed up on pulleys as in a ship of the line? Also, at what stage in the firing of the gun would they run to fetch the powder while it was being sponged or earlier before it was being fired? Question two, how many men were required for the gun crew of a 12-pounder carronade? If you can help with either of those questions, do please get in touch. You can find the posts in our forum on the Age of Sail at snr.org.uk. Otherwise, please do join the Society. It does not cost very much, but you will receive four copies a year of the Mariner's Mirror Journal. You can apply for tickets to come to our annual dinner on HMS Victory, a really magical experience. And your money goes towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.